In the Reading Corner today, I'm talking with journalist and author Philip Womack. Philip is the critically acclaimed writer of fantasy stories that are infused with myth, legend and wild magic in the tradition of Alan Garner and Susan Cooper. These include a trilogy, The Darkening Path, which takes its inspiration from the quest of Child Roland, and The Arrows of Apollo, about the childhoods of Orestes and Aeneas. Today, we're stepping into the fairy realm to talk about Philip's latest book, Wild Lord, published by Little Island. I'm really pleased to welcome Philip into the reading corner because the last time we spoke was in the days when I wrote interviews out by hand. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that was, you're right, about six or seven years ago. So things have moved on. (laughs) And what's really nice now is that people get to hear the voice of the writer. I do think it's magic to hear the voice of the writer and hear them in their own words. So we're going to talk about Wild Lord. And I think to start, I wonder whether you could just tell us about the story in your words. So... Wild Lord is a story that is essentially about captivity and about breaking free and about making a space for yourself in the world. And it's about a young man, really. I mean, he's 16, 17 um, years old, called Tom. Both Tom's parents died in a sort of freak accident um, when he was quite young. Um, and so he lives um, in, a, in a boarding school um, during term time and then sometimes has to stay at school during term time, which is um, not much fun. Um, his guardian is a businessman who's always traveling around the world. So he's very lonely, basically. And uh, one day he receives a very, very mysterious message from someone claiming to be his uncle, which is interesting because Tom, as far as he knows, doesn't have an uncle. So he's intrigued by this. He sort of remembers something in his family background about there being a farm somewhere. And so because he's sort of desperate to to get out of um, this school situation, he decides to go. Um, and when he gets there, when he gets to the farm, um, he discovers uh, some distinctly odd things going on so there are strange people inside the house Um, there's his uncle who's very uh, mysterious and disappears for long stretches of time and has mood swings and uh, talks about uh, extraordinary things uh, that he doesn't really understand and has a stuffed crocodile in his study and then there's um, Zita who's this very beautiful girl that he uh, finds himself slowly falling in love with who's very open she's very charming but she's also quite difficult and moody Um, And then there's Kit, who's perhaps the most complicated character of all, who um, has very long silver hair and silver eyes. So Tom um, then discovers that uh, the house is basically under siege by these mysterious beings um, who want something that's inside the house. And it's up to Tom uh, to discover what that is and then um, uh, to, to solve the mystery of what's happening. It has a sort of timeless feel to it right from the beginning, even though it's set in the present day. It could be set 100 years ago. It could be set 200 years ago. And there's something about the boarding school start, the opening of that, that doesn't make it contemporary urban. That's what I felt reading it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said that because I've always tried to do that with my books. I've always tried to locate them in our world, in our time, but to to make it wide enough um, so so that they will last. And, and and actually, the boarding school setting is, is is very good for that because they haven't changed for you know 150 mm. years. The the setting doesn't change, and so it kind of adds to that timelessness. Mm. I mean, things start to mysterious things start to happen even when Tom is at school. 
time is mm. disrupted. Yes. Um, and so we know right from the beginning that we're in a story that's going to feature some kind of magic. Obviously, that builds as the story grows. And the magic involves the people. You're going to have to pronounce this for me. So I call them the Sandhya. But um, they're called that because as a linguist at university, well, classicist, um, we, we did a lot of um, linguistics and we looked into um, Indo-European and Proto-Indo-European. So I was trying to find a way of, of, of a kind of Ur language. Um, and so going back into the roots of words. And, um, and so some of the Sandhya have got names that come from this notional language, which is Proto-Indo-European, which is a sort of made-up theoretical language that is posited as the source of all the Indo-European languages. And so Sandhya um, means holding together. I mean, it's slightly sort of modified, but it is a sort of way of saying that these are the people who hold things together. That's what they're called. And one of the leaders or the leader, uh, the central Sandhya that we have, he's called Rohingya. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> actually, actually, that name just came to me without any kind of um, linguistic sort of research. So my my thinking behind that name was that it it must be a, a pre-Proto-Indo-European name that, that sort of came from the ether. So, so what it means, I don't know, but it has it has got henge in it. So perhaps that's got something to do with it. I mean, I call him Hawk in the Mist, but I don't think... Um, Rohingya means that, but it's uh, it's it's a name that was just literally plucked from the ether. It, it came to me like like Rohingya did himself. I mean, he it's very strange the writing process, and I know that it sounds a little bit odd to say things like this, but he walked into my brain and he was already there, and he was called Rohingya. So I couldn't then change his name, even when I was making other people's names from from the sort of um, the, the building blocks of Proto Indo European. Um, I couldn't change his name, so. I think we should go back to the plot a little bit. Uh, Tom is, as you say, sent this letter to go and stay um, with his uncle. And he meets, as he's leaving the school, mm. he meets who we later know uh, is Rohingya. Mm. And we know then that there's a sort of antagonism that is being mm. set up between mm. Tom and the place that he's going and mm. these, would you say they're fairy people? Well, yes, I would. I I would say that they are obviously not the sort of chocolate box fairies that that, that sort of late Victoriana or um, early Edwardians, you know, with gauzy wings and all that sort of thing. That which are a very different sort of thing. But but it is this idea of the fae, the Tuatha de Danann, um, the she, the sort of mysterious beings that most cultures have some sort of sense of um, that exist in between us and something else and and so there's such a fascinating idea and I think that in many ways they reflect us they reflect aspects of us that we find troubling perhaps they um, are ways of explaining certain parts of our nature that we we don't really necessarily want to discuss in the open perhaps you know and then of course they're also beautiful and and they like music and they like dancing and they like hunting Mm. so there's so much there to play with that, um, Mm. that I felt that even though many others have have sort of accessed that sort of seam of of literature that there was plenty more to be done. (laughs) Mm. And I think that in in some respects, in some folklore, they're like fallen angels as well, like you were saying, living between earth and hell. And what is their relationship with humans? So 
this is something that will be developed further if, which I hope there will be uh, at least one more book. Certainly in the context of this book, their guardians, um, it, it's their role to um, make sure that, that the world is balanced, um, that the that no one like Jack gets too much power because there is magic in this world. And, and you know, Tom has that within him, which is something that he discovers as he goes um, through the book. So, so their role is to sort of keep an eye on things. Um, they don't they're not sort of they're not interventionists they don't come in to guide people you know they're just there to kind of keep an eye on things and make sure nothing gets over overly uh, troublesome like uh, like old Jack <laughs> but sometimes they want relationships with human beings yes they do and sometimes they have relationships with human beings um, which is part of their nature as well because they are they're not pure spirit they they have a bit of that sort of human nature within them so Tom is off to Tom's house and it's this mysterious house that seems to change mm. shape. It's on an island surrounded by a moat and it's in Suffolk. Mm-hmm. So maybe just tell me a little bit about the, the setting. Well, the setting is somewhere that I know. Um, I've spent a lot of time there and it feels quite remote. East Anglia feels remote, even though it's not. You can obviously get there in, in two and a half hours. But what I love about Suffolk is that it doesn't feel English in the way that Sussex does or something like that. Like the buildings look a bit Dutch. They look a bit different. You have quite a lot of influence from Holland there. And there's a lot of farmhouses, um, which are just normal farmhouses. You know, they're, they're not grand houses. They're not necessarily stately homes or anything like that. They're just farmhouses, which have got moats. And, and, and the simple, straightforward reason for that is that it was very marshy and they needed drainage. But obviously, when I saw this, I sort of thought, well, why are there so many moats around normal houses, farmhouses? Well, obviously, they must be there to stop the she getting in. So <laughs> that was my... And and I, I know that it's normally running water that they can't cross, but I sort of thought, well, you know, water, you know, a moat does have quite a lot of moats do have fresh water going through them. So, um, so and then there are lots of mounds. Obviously, the, there's the famous ones at, at Sutton Hoo. Um, which I, I adore. And they were pagans. Those those particular Saxons were pagans. They hadn't yet been Christianized. So there is a real sense of um, of kind of mystery and ancient civilization there. Um, so I sort of put those two things together. And I, you know, because the Shi live in mounds and, and there's obviously the association of the Shi with the dead and, and there's, there's that going on as well. So I thought, well, you've got a house, farmhouse, you've got a moat, you've got a mound, and then it just kind of all flowed from there. So. Mm. <laughs> Why are the Sandia so cross with Tom? There's something in the house, isn't there? So essentially speaking, the Sandia are testing Tom in a way. So what what um, what Rohenga does at the beginning is a test and he, he passes the test. And they test him all the way through until the end. But what, what's inside the house? So Jack is a, um, as it turns out, a very, very powerful magician. And he is manipulating energies. He's manipulating forces that are not his. Um, And he has something, I I won't say what, he has something that belongs to the Sandia, which he's captured, which is very, very precious to them. And nobody else in the history of the world has ever been able to do this. And Jack was only able to do this because of Kit, who has this particular um, ability. Um, So the Sandia are unable to get in the house because of the wards that Jack puts up around it. They're unable to cross the moat um, and they want their thing back. And so <laughs> that's why they're angry. I wanted to talk, you've, you've told us about the human characters in this story, but the dog, 
Liana. I think the dog's pretty important. The dog's very important. I'm glad you noticed that. The dog is is very much based on on my dog, Una. And I think if we're thinking in terms of the texture of of the novel, then because there's a lot of wildness in it and a lot of um, a sense of the boundaries between wildness and animals and then Leana is obviously a domesticated dog so she's Mm. a kind of bridge between animal and human but she's also got this kind of wild aspect to her so in many ways she's a kind of um a a bridge between Tom and the Sandia but yeah without her it would be a very different book she's um she she has an important role to play um Mm. and Leana uh, as well I think um has a sense of lioness as well so there's definitely that there Mm. And adds a comfort as well for the yeah. reader. Look, we, there's a very important part of this that we haven't talked about, and that's the way in which it's written. Mm. And it's not an epistolary novel as such, but every chapter does begin with, at least to begin with, it's um, extracts from mm-hmm. a diary, mm-hmm. which makes it feel a little like a 19th century novel. Mm. It be Wilkie Collins that we're mm-hmm. reading. Tell me a little bit about when you decided to write it in this way. That's a difficult question to answer because it just happened. <laughs> and and I think that the character who's writing the, the, the diary is Margaret Ravenswood, who is the daughter of a local rector in the 19th century. She again appeared and I just immediately knew who she was and, and how many sisters she had and you know, the fact she, she's engaged to be married to this horrible curate that, that she doesn't want to marry. And it's a story that runs in parallel to Tom's story, because, again, it's about something being forced on you that you don't want and then trying to find a way out of it. So it, it sort of informs the story and it also kind of sets it in relief as well. It's a kind of different mm-hmm. way of doing it. But but the diary extracts are, are actually part of the story as well because Tom finds the diary and then he reads it himself so so that sort of made sense as well that, that the reader should have access to, to that and, and also it's a way of kind of you know because when you're writing and you want you want your reader to be sort of pulled on and and so it adds an extra layer of sort of of pull basically um, through, through, through the text because you want to find out what, why those diary entries are there and eventually I hope when you do find out I hope it's a bit of a kind of a shock when you do find out can I just ask though, because the diary, as you you've said, is in the house and Tom has access to that. Mm-hmm. So did that idea come after you decided to have the diary? It's that sort of which order it came um, in. Uh, gosh, it's so hard to answer this because it feels like it was all there in my head already. <laughs> you do a lot of thinking before you start writing and and with the double axe, which for those of you who haven't read it, is um, a sort of reinterpretation of the Minotaur story. So, so the narrative was already there. I had the characters. I had this the story. I was just twisting it a little bit. So it kind of wrote itself. And it was the same with the Arrow of Apollo because I was drawing on myths. So I was looking at the logical extensions of the myths that were already there. And because, because there was a sort of logical expression of those myths. And it, again, it kind of wrote itself. And with this story, because it does move through time and space, there had to be a a character who could throw light in it from the past for it to make sense. So there needed to be documentation, I suppose, mm. in terms of a story. Because when you're, when you're writing a story, it doesn't just exist in and of itself. It has background so I suppose that's where it came from really as an episode in a long period of interactions with the Sandia and so this particular uh, diarist Margaret who who does um, see she does meet 
um, the Samdia, um, she, she sort of felt like I, I needed her as a way of making it seem more plausible in terms of documentation. What's also interesting about them is the way that they're written. And one of the things that I did after I'd finished the book, I went back and just read the diary entry. Oh, that's really nice. And that's a different reading experience entirely. It's really interesting when you do that. And you realise just how you're being set up to ask questions all the time through reading. The important bit is always missing from the diary entry. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) And I love that because you have to create a story yourself. You want the reader to fill in the bits. You want to to suggest just enough so that the reader um, um, can can sort of fill in the gaps, really. I love the story that came from those bits. Oh, the, you know, the curate was there waiting, um, the bridal dress that's hanging up, and she's obviously got no interest uh, in it. It was really great. But then that changes, and I I think partway through the story, you stop them being Mm -hmm. diary entries, Mm -hmm. and they're now the sayings Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. Samdhya. And that's interesting, too, because we get a real sense of their philosophy Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. that. Some of them are made up and then others are very much informed by 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 Seneca and there there is a sense that that the mind is is very important that the mind can break through things that that knowledge is very important um power is very important but then also balance is important so um uh, existing within nature but but also using knowledge in the right way so that things are, are, are harmonized and then finally we shift, I think it's finally, we shift yeah. to her father's Father, entries. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we won't say too much about those. No, but there's, the, the, there's a letter that he writes to his bishop that he never sends. And then then there is another letter, I think, at the end, which kind of rounds it off a bit. Yeah. And even though we know so little about him, I really liked him, this Good. father, just from a few, you know, just a few entries uh, well, at the end there. It's interesting because my surname, Womack, is very prevalent in Norfolk and, and Suffolk. And, and, and in Suffolk, there is um, a place called Lopham, where the, the rector a long time ago was called the, the Reverend Arthur Womack. And then his son was Lawrence Womack, who was a bishop. And so there was definitely that there that you sort of imagine what they might have been like and sort of, you know, you kind of imagine people in a particular way. So that, that kind of informed it too. the sort of the research that I was doing into that. I know we've talked a little bit about magic already, but I'd like to talk about some of the elements. Elements are really important in this story. You've mentioned that Kit, at first I I didn't think it was literal silver, Mm. but as the story moved on, I I feel that it is literal. His hair is literally silver Mm. and Mm. his eyes are literally silver. So there are a number of metals, elemental metals, silver and iron in this story. What do we know about those, their qualities in folklore? Well, iron obviously is, is something that the, the she have never been able to um, to stand. And, and that's read in many different ways. And, and, and one theory was that it was to do with the coming of the Iron Age and, and that all the Bronze Age people who sort of, you know, weren't able to adapt, they, they sort of all, all ran off. So that's one idea, you know, that the iron pushes the old gods out. And then um, silver... Because of the again, it's the sort of the uh, the, the ages. You've got the Bronze Age, the Silver Age, the, the Golden Age, and and so I wanted 
it to be silver because Jack is not he's not a good person and 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 silver you know he's not gold he's and he's not bronze he, he's he's in between he's silver is mysterious it's it's magical it's moonlight um it's strange um so I, I sort of wanted to associate Jack's magic with with that um, mm, interesting there's a lot in the story about captivity and freedom and binding things and again knots and knots have lots of magical references too to to go back to the idea of captivity part of what worries me is the way that children are increasingly surveyed and they're increasingly kept inside and 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 watched over and and they're not allowed to roam in 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 the way that they they, they used to be and I saw that in a lot of children's books when I was judging a prize and I sort of feel that the point of a children's book should be to break down boundaries and to open up the world and to show people different things but then in in terms of sort of locks and and knots and bindings well that's what the she are very very good at doing that and uh the, the folkloric she they bind people with spells they put them under glamours they hide people they imprison them so I thought it was actually quite interesting to do it the other way around to, to start with because you don't without giving too much away you know just to kind of flip that a little bit so that you you had a situation which was unusual in terms of the the kind of folklore of the she and, and, and then also there's the sense of secrets and, and obviously there's a lot of secrets in in the novel and things being unlocked unopened so um the imagery of chests of um prisons of cages is is is, is there all the way through and 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 things being released so so zeta t- talks about when she was a little girl and she released all these canaries and they all fly out and so that's um, that's very much a kind of central theme. Um, locks and keys in a house. Um, I'm going to get all, all sort of Freudian now, but um, it was Freud's theory that you dream about a house. You're essentially dreaming about your own body or your own image of yourself in some way. So there is that sense there with Mundum Farm that it's kind of the way it's expanding and contracting is a sort of um, image of how you grow and change as a person, which is kind of interesting. And then all the kind of shadowy rooms and that are unlocked are parts of your own mind, parts of your own psyche that you're kind of um, unlocking. So there, there's a lot there, basically. <laughs> mm, there is. And there's a lot to, you know, Tom discovers things in those rooms. And yeah, a exactly. lot of it, there's a lot of wish fulfillment as well yeah. in exactly. those rooms. Yeah. You sort of took us to start thinking about what children's literature is, mm. what it's for. Mm. And also thinking about trends in publishing. Mm. Reading your book, although it's very different from uh, Philip Reeve's story, which I was talking about earlier, Mm. there is a connection in as much as they have a depth and a slow build to them. They are exciting. (laughs) And, you know, there's something really big coming in both of these stories. But they are quite a slow build and they do take you into a place and they give you an opportunity to explore that place in a reflective way as well and it strikes me that they're quite different to Mm -hmm. many stories that are being written Mm -hmm. at the moment what are your thoughts about that as you know I review and and read a lot of young adult fiction and and I think that there is a big trend at the moment for things to be loud to be fast um, to be immediately graspable what worries me about those things is that they can be too polemical so, so, so that there's only one way of reading something. What I hope with fiction is that, you know, with certainly with children's fiction, the best children's fiction has got so much going on in it 
that, that even something like Philip Pullman's books, which are overtly uh, atheist, but there, there, are, there are things that you can argue with in that because he's, he's made this enormous, fascinating, scintillating universe that, that it isn't as straightforward as saying, well, this is an atheist book because there are other things happening which you can kind of grapple with. And, and of course, there is a place for it and there are teenagers who want books like that and, and, and they, they get something out of it. But, but I think it's maybe the difference between I say I don't want to make a comparison that's going to offend anyone, but but maybe it's the difference between like eating a sweet and having pudding. I don't know. Does that make sense? I don't know. <laughs> it's a tricky one because it's easier to to market and promote a book when you can say, um, well, this book is saying this particular thing about the world that needs to be changed, and then you can hang a campaign on it, and everyone can get behind it. It's much harder to to kind of build a campaign around a book that has a slow start and it's just a kind of you know a meditation on 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 history and time, which is what I hope there is also in in Wildlord is that is that there's sort of slightly more um, mysterious, strange things happening under the surface, but you can't hang a Twitter hashtag on that. <laughs> well, I can try. <laughs> <laughs> it's looking at it the wrong way round. It's saying well. How can we promote this book? So when you start with that, then you go back to the book and you say, well, in order to promote this book, I need to write a book that can be promoted. So it seems to be to be slightly, yeah. slightly the wrong way around. Yeah, it's a really interesting thought. It's also a very beautiful, thought-provoking, unsettling book. Thank you. I like to be unsettled. <laughs> Good. I'd like not to know where I'm going at the beginning yeah. and arrive somewhere different at the end. Yeah. And even then, I might not be entirely a hundred percent sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hoped I hoped it would be unsettling, and there's a few things in in the ending in the final chapter which I left in there in order precisely to unsettle. It's brilliant, and um, thank you so much for talking to me, Philip. I hope there is going to be another book, and if I will certainly be picking it up and reading it. Oh, thank you. That's wonderful. It's really nice chatting. Thank you, Nikki. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform. <laughs>